Hello, glad to have you with us for NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. Artificial intelligence continues to grip the imagination and the headlines. The European Union is taking steps to impose restrictions on AI to address concerns about privacy, discrimination, and disinformation. And McKinsey has issued a new report predicting that AI will have an immense impact on productivity and jobs. Here to discuss these issues and more, Andrew Moore, CEO of Lovelace AI, an advisor to Central Command and co-chair of the Special Competitive Studies Project Generative AI Task Force. He was previously vice president and general manager of Google Cloud AI and dean of Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science. Andrew, it's great to have you with us. Thanks, Jean. Very happy to be here. I'm going to throw you a question that I asked Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, a few weeks ago at a conference. As a technologist, are you excited by AI or are you terrified by AI? Oh, why can't I be both? Uh, It's uh, So uh, there are some huge upsides to having certain parts of the way the world works, uh, getting advice from super intelligent beings. That is... The prospects there for uh, smart, uh, uh, really great uh, improvements in the worlds of biochemistry, healthcare, uh, environment, uh, efficiency, that is, it's what I've devoted my life to. And it's so great to see it coming to fruition and all the success stories around it. So that's good. But at the same time, there's absolutely no question, like any technology, this stuff can really be used to do a lot of damage. And so we have to be ready for that. This podcast hopes to help the general public better understand technology and its implications. So I'd like to start with some definitions here. In all of this buzz about AI, we hear terms like generative AI, large language model AI. What are the different categories of AI? And can you help us understand how they differ from one another? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So... Uh, This all started about 50 years ago uh, with the concept of artificial intelligence coming out of the United States uh, uh, from a conference uh, at the University of Dartmouth. And there they defined AI as uh, running on computers the process of human-like intelligence to perceive the world, to take action on what you perceive, uh, and to improve your performance over time. So that's the the basic question. It's the, can we simulate uh, things which seem to us like human intelligence with computers? Uh, as time went by, uh, lots of us made a terrible, terrible mistake. And this mistake was in the 1990s when I just started out in AI. And back then, we, if you, uh, I don't know if you recall this, but it was in 1997 that a computer beat Kasparov at chess. Oh, yes. It was a big development. That was so huge, right? It was like, oh, well, chess is the ultimate uh, uh, example of intelligence. uh, And suddenly computers are better than humans at it. And so for a very short while, we thought, oh, we're done. We've we've now conquered intelligence. But what quickly happened was we noticed that chess was very special. It was the one problem where you could completely tell the computer what are the rules of the game and the computer would understand it because you can just program in the rules of chess in quarter of an hour something like whether a user is going to enjoy a movie 
or uh, whether a treatment uh, for a particular disease is going to be effective for someone with this genotype. All those kinds of things. We couldn't program in uh, the rules to say whether that's going to happen. And so everyone was kind of stuck for a moment thinking, damn it, we've got the ability to make computers search over billions of possible things they could do and choose the best. But it's hopeless if they can't predict what will happen next as a result of their actions. Bingo, along came this thing called machine learning. And it was the idea that I can't program a computer to figure out whether you're going to enjoy uh, the latest uh, Marvel Avengers movie, but statistical analysis of lots of data of people uh, and their opinions of movies, including people perhaps with your similar tastes, those kinds of statistical analyses can uh, start to predict that. And so the, from about the year 2000 to about 2010, it was all about learn from data. And that went very well for a while. What then happened is we kind of ran out of data. Uh, we had what looks like huge amounts of data coming from around the world. Uh, all this satellite data, wonderful data from uh, uh, things like traffic cameras or lots of or the behavior of people clicking uh, ads on websites. It just didn't seem enough. And then around the start of this decade, around 2020, people said, you know where we can get a lot of data? Let's just go to the internet, take every single thing on the internet, and ask computers to get really good at predicting what the next word is going to be on a web page. Why is that so good? It's the one case of something where we've already got a trillion data points. There's so much content out there on the web uh, where we can just give the computer this really simple task of predicting the next word. This idea of predicting the next word, and then you tell the computer, all right, you can predict the next word, so how would, how would someone answer the following question? And the computer will say this, and then having said this, it'll say, what's the next word is, and then it'll say an interesting question. And so we discovered that by itself, getting the computer to generate the next word over and over again, it was when it's trained on enough data, it starts to give us these really interesting sentences in response. So that's so, generative AI, I presume. Exactly. And yes. chat GPT is an example of generative AI? Yes. ChatGPT is the second best generative AI system in the world. Second best. What's yes. first? The first is also made by OpenAI. It's GPT-4, uh, which many people think of as being the same thing. But GPT-4 is a much, much bigger uh, model. Uh, and that's the one which uh, uh, I'm still in awe of how smart its answers are. So that's generative AI. Large language model AI is the older stuff? Large language model is uh, one way for a computer to appear intelligent by generating stuff. And in the case of large language models, it generates language. But ah. in other cases, there are other AIs which generate images or video clips or music. So you have things like uh, stability.ai, uh, for instance, which does this amazing work of uh, uh, creating artificial intelligence images. So that's generating images, 
the larger language models generate text and they're all generative AIs. So I mentioned in the intro that McKinsey has just done a study on AI. It predicts that generative AI could deliver total value between $2.6 trillion and $4.4 trillion a year, a sum greater than the GDP of Germany. And non-generative AI, it says, could deliver four times as much. Are you that bullish? It could have that level of impact on the economy. But the problem is we're not done. It's not a done deal that we're going to get that. There's lots and lots of other work that needs to happen. And probably the, the most difficult thing is the, this is what I'm really obsessed with at the moment, uh, that gulf between the great demo, either a YouTube video of a robot doing a handstand or an app where you can type a question and get amazed by the answer. There's a huge chasm from there to something which is actually having an effect on the GDP of the world. Because to have Why an effect on the that? GDP world, uh, it's really because the world uh, is very, very demanding. And so when you start to look at the places where superhuman automation could make a difference, you realize it's not okay for this thing to be really, really impressive. 96% of the time and really stupid 4% of the time. Now this, we've, we've all in the industry, we've learned this uh, from the story of self-driving vehicles. That's a perfect example of where I think we are now with generative AI. Uh, and by the way, just for the record, I totally caught this, uh, uh, kind of, uh, and I'll get to that. Back in 2015, that's a long time ago, that's eight years ago, uh, there was huge excitement about the advent of uh, autonomous driving. And you had the sudden appearance of all these autonomous driving companies. And the reason it was exciting is that we'd all seen amazing demos of cars driving themselves down the street, stopping, using their, their blinkers properly, turning the corner and all of those things. And so you see the demo and you think, oh, it's done. Just a few little details to tie up. That absolutely turned out not to be the case. If it was able to run autonomously for 97% of the time, that was great for the impressive demo. It was great to be awesome for a McKinsey uh, journalist or for almost anyone else to see and say, wow, I can see where this is going. But just like a, sort of the wicked stepmother, it's a, uh, uh, an old fashioned fable, that last 3% was sitting there saying, I am going to doom you. That last 3%, of course, was the cases which required really sort of cognitive problem solving, where a human driver might see a double parked truck and see a couple of kids who are messing around. And the human driver would immediately be very cautious, but they notice perhaps that the kids are, they're interested in something else and they are slowly walking away so they can go. A car can't make that kind of deduction, at least not with this level of safety confidence that you expect. So the car's just going to sit there and it's going to call for help. It's going to say, hey, human, you've got to figure out what to do here. So the idea in 2015 was we're autonomous 97% of the time. Let's put all this funding into the self-driving car business and perhaps 
every year we can get another half percent. So that 2016 will be at 97 and a half, 2017 at 98, but it didn't turn out that way. It turned out that every year, the amount of extra autonomy that they could add was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So even now, I think many people are saying the future of autonomous driving will be freeway only for maybe the foreseeable future until there's another huge breakthrough. And think about it, that's so similar to the what we're talking about with generative AI at the moment, where we say, you know, sometimes GPT gives these amazing answers and it seems so much smarter than any human. And sometimes it gives crazy answers. So let's just wait a few months or years for them to figure out how to deal with those crazy answers and then we'll be all set. But the time it's going to take for that to happen complete unknown right now, and it might be a decade. You're talking about technological obstacles. Are there other obstacles to deploying this technology? For instance, concerns about privacy. Yes. I'm going to break it up into two things which I'm most worried about. One of them is the the implications of putting all this information together to come up with smart answers. Sometimes, unless you're really, really careful, you're going to end up with a privacy breach. So that's number one. Number two, it's still the case that if an organization, maybe it's a oil company, maybe it's a retailer, maybe it's a hospital system, says, well, I want to use AI, there's still a big, there's a whole set of ways in which an AI project that a CEO of one of those organizations wants to do They can start the AI project, and there's so many ways that that AI project can die before it gets into deployment that uh, there's still lots of work left to do before we start to really reap these rewards that we're hoping to get. There are also on the business side um, some uncertainty uh, and perhaps fear about where regulation's going to go in this space. Yes, and I think... Many of us would agree that some degree of regulation is going to be important, but there's a huge fear that there might be something impractical, which not only stifles innovation, but maybe leaves it so that the only places you can innovate are non-Western countries. So there's there's going to be a huge dilemma there for us. So the EU is it, the EU is already moving towards regulation. The parliament uh, is pushing ahead with the AI Act, which would regulate how companies train AI models, require disclosure when AI is being used, ban real-time biometric surveillance in public spaces, and more. What do you think of that approach? It can help if it's not done amateurishly. But the problem is, it is so easy to throw away the benefits the genuine benefits which can save lives uh, if you sort of come down on it with a blunt instrument. So let me give some examples here. The ability to use artificial intelligence to educate are really profound. And that ability for youngsters or adults to get the absolute full attention of something which is really doing a good job of diagnosing where they're confused and helping them understand. This is great. And I, I'm so excited about 
many results of how the use of uh, these very, very patient tutors can help kids or other people who perhaps are not able to get that level of attention from a human teacher, or maybe the human teachers just don't have the expertise to teach it. So that's great. If there's a sudden blanket refusal to say, allow the AIs to listen to human voices, like actual speech utterances by people who are asking them questions, or perhaps if you've got to go through a five-year FDA-like approval process to do that, then again, you're not going to see the educational benefits of AI in Western countries for many, many years. In the meantime, other parts of the world will be able to see such a revolution uh, in learning outcomes for kids. So is the European approach a hammer? At the moment, when I looked at the details of what the Europeans are asking for in their approach, if I'm charitable, it's not desperately onerous. It's pretty sensible, and it's, re- it's, very, it's very much in line with uh, the privacy laws from, uh, which many of your listeners are going to be familiar with, called GDPR laws to do with making sure that uh, identifiable information about people uh, is kept really clear, is, is kept really distinct from any other use of data. So that kind of stuff makes a lot of sense. The idea of trying to push really hard on things like preventing bias in an AI system, the problem with legislation about that is solving those problems are not that is not really an artificial intelligence problem. That is a societal problem. You think the Europeans have provided a template for regulation in the U.S. And if it is not followed by regulators in the U.S. and we end up with a system that isn't harmonious across nations, isn't this a phenomenal headache for the tech industry? And what impact is that going to have on innovation potentially? I think it can, it can be a big headache. So here's a great example, and it's not specifically to do with artificial intelligence, but just to do with uh, safely storing backup data. So if you've got your data uh, for some airline, perhaps an airline in France uh, sitting there under EU regulations, all your information about your customers has to stay in France, which may sound sensible, but one way to keep that data completely safe from ever getting lost in a disaster where you know a, a data center gets taken out is to actually have a fully encrypted version of that data sitting somewhere else in Europe, uh, somewhere on a separate power grid uh, with separate suppliers, separate uh, uh, deals to do with getting uh, uh, energy to the uh, data center. And so suddenly the regulation, which is meant to protect the personal data data of French customers of this airline, it's much more expensive, much more energy wasteful, and usually re- requires building of extra data centers in the same country in order to meet the regulations. That is inefficient, especially when technologists would be able to find ways of keeping it equally secure using encryption uh, by allowing it in uh, other countries. So this is, in my opinion, an example of where a well-meaning regulator can do more harm than good uh, in the uh, in the pursuit of something which sounds admirable—the pursuit of privacy. It's just without that level of smarts on thinking how 
most efficiently to implement these protections, things can go wrong. And the United States has been better than Europe so far in really thinking through these uh, details. You mentioned that regulation could impact um, the West's positioning to master and deploy AI as opposed to the rest of the world. Would you expand on that just a little bit? Yes. So there's a very, in my opinion, troubling uh, thing going on at the moment where within China, uh, where of course there's plenty of admirable technology being developed for all kinds of admirable uses, there are also uh, huge amounts of uh, uh, investment in R&D on surveillance of citizens. Uh, uh, really at a level uh, that uh, completely outshines the West. Now, at first sight, you may say, that's fine. In the West, we really value our freedoms and our privacy. So, of course, we wouldn't be developing technology which can track, say, every member of the country everywhere they go uh, and notice the first sign of disloyalty in any of them. Of course, that will be anathema to the West. But because we're not doing it, it also means that the people in the world right now who know the who've got the most practice in doing uh, any kind of surveillance are the ones in China who have already practiced on this stuff. Now, I would not want the United States to, to do anything like this kind of surveillance, but we have to be ready for possible futures where we, we might be in some kind of conflict uh, with a country which has got 50 times as much expertise as we do in monitoring uh, the states of any kind of battlefield or any kind of situation where uh, mass surveillance is useful. Which brings us to your role as an advisor to CENTCOM. Central Command is responsible for military operations in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia. Tell us why they brought you on board and why Central Command as opposed to the Pentagon writ large. It's uh, something I'm very, very excited about. Uh, and I think the, the underlying theme of all of these kind of questions is getting practice at actually using AI in the field. And I've seen in my role at Google with hospital systems, when you get folks on the front lines actually interested in using the technology, that's when projects move forward. When you get some theoretician in some research lab saying, I think you should try this out, then the products don't move forward. And CENTCOM is uh, one of the perfect examples of an organization in within the DOD that has immediate actionable responsibilities. So uh, their commander, General Carilla, is uh, fixated on using technology to make operations safer, uh, more efficient, uh, and more effective generally through technology. Uh, and CENTCOM is a place where there are many different diverse kinds of problems to deal with. There's lots of work with being careful about uh, smuggling or marine actions. There's plenty of work on 
keeping civilians safe from IEDs. Uh, there's lots of work on transportation and logistics, uh, moving things around, making sure that stockpiles are in the right place at the right time and so forth. So what I love, I'm so thrilled about the opportunity to work with CENTCOM, is we actually work with the people who are doing stuff right now and we build up the AIs from the ground rather than starting in some sort of theoretical place and saying, ah, I'm sure the troops need this kind of AI, let's uh, impose it upon them. So uh, I think it's a huge and really important step forward. And I've seen this with other commands. Uh, 80, uh, the 18th Airborne is another command which uh, is really looking for using the technology in practice. And then something, of course, you'll have heard a lot in the world of uh, uh, technology companies, uh, iterative product improvement, uh, where, where we're not reading an RFP for a product to be built and fielded in three years where everyone crosses their fingers that's going to be relevant. Everything instead that we're doing is on a weekly cadence of, well, this kind of works, but let's see if we can make it better and operating that way. So the applications you mentioned uh, seems to me involves data and better data analysis. Are you also working on autonomous weapons? There is the use of autonomous platforms. Uh, so uh, as you know, the United States uh, has got very uh, careful rules about the uh, use of uh, uh, autonomy in within weapon systems. Uh, but at the moment, as we're seeing around the world, the most important use of uh, autonomous platforms is for gathering data. So making sure that in an area where perhaps suddenly a surprising number of ships are gathering for no apparent reason, you quickly get an eye in the sky uh, and that eye is a, in the sky is secure and able to continue operating even in the, even in the face of adversaries. So autonomy is the name of the game here. Uh, and But the use of autonomous platforms by the West has really uh, been focused on autonomy for getting a full operating picture of what's actually happening. Military institutions in the West are often called out for being slow to innovate. Procurement is one bottleneck. Are there others? So I think I came in with some preconceptions. Uh, uh, and I've actually been very encouraged by some aspects. So I completely agree. The procurement situation is disastrous. And the uh, what in, I'm sure you've heard this phrase before, waterfall design of products, where you say way in advance the full specifications of what you're going to build, and then you wait six months or three years until they're built, and then you put them into action. That kind of disastrous problem is still endemic uh, within uh, the US government and actually many other uh, legacy industries. That's a big problem. But having said that, the good news is, and something which I've only been exposed to recently through my uh, opportunity to work with CENTCOM, is the bottoms up, the folks on the ground making use of technology themselves, downloading useful packages or I've even seen people come up with brilliant new ways of using an old-fashioned project like Microsoft Excel to 
uh, really changed the game. So there is huge amounts of talent there, many of it by people whose day job is operational, not research. And sometimes, I know this may sound a little far-fetched, but I, I think it's fair to say, I think some of those folks are making more progress than the old established research labs in making sure that there's real useful AI technology out there uh, in use by the military. Despite those encouraging signs, would you say that the U.S. military is behind its adversaries in the field, particularly China? In some aspects, it's behind. And those aspects are to do with surveillance, the kind of things which is anathema to us uh, in the West. But when someone's got good at surveillance, that means that they're also very good at quickly reacting to what's going on in a potential battlefield. That is an area where I want to make sure that the United States or a commander who's got responsibilities for keeping thousands, maybe tens of thousands of troops safe and effective on a battlefield gets all the information they need. At the moment, there are some cases where, uh, I'm no expert on this, but I would fear that the know-how in China is actually more advanced than our own. Uh, And of course, we're all teaming together to do something about that. How important is it that the U.S. develop these capabilities, and what are the implications if it does not? The kind of thing which happens in these big near-peer conflicts, uh, I think it's just like the rest of industry. It used to be that big decisions were made, perhaps daily or hourly, as to what the big operations are or what the orders are going out to folks. Now, if you could imagine a world where both sides are monitoring every aspect of what's happening in a scenario. Perhaps they've got eyes in the sky, uh, huge amounts of reports from people on the ground, even things like social media information about what's happening. In those circumstances, you can imagine a conflict where everything looks like it's just stuck, nothing's happening. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, when one side exposes a gap, just as left the gate open somewhere, if you like, perhaps in their electronic warfare, perhaps physically, uh, perhaps uh, just having a blind spot where there's no surveillance. At that point, the other side can pounce in and with fast moving AI systems can take action much more quickly. So the decisions now have to happen in minutes or in some cases, uh, and of course the Aegis missile system is a perfect example of this, sub-second. So that's what I would worry about at the moment is if we didn't keep up on making sure that we can have very fast information to commanders and very fast, decisive action, uh, both to defend and if necessary, to look for weaknesses in uh, an enemy's posture. Andrew Moore, thank you. Andrew Moore is CEO of Lovelace AI, an advisor to CENTCOM on AI, and is a former vice president and general manager of Google Cloud AI. He is also a member of the Special Competitive Studies Project Generative AI Task Force. He was also a commissioner on the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. And thanks to all of you for listening to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. So glad you could join and hope you will again. Take care.